we are back in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, and we have skipped ahead following to a place that follows the triumphal entry to verse 12, where we read that on the following day, that, that is the day after Jesus rode on on the back of a, of a colt, when, when they came from Bethany toward Jerusalem, Jesus was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf he went to see if he could find anything on it when he came to it he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs now, I'm certainly no horticulturalist my family can testify to that fact but based on what I have read fig trees in this part of the world they go to leaf in the spring, and even before they go to leaf, they begin to produce little tiny green figs, which will later ripen in June. If Jesus is, is making his trip into Jerusalem, as we think, which was around the time of April, even though it wasn't technically the season for figs, there should have been some tasty, I'm told, and immature fruit that is growing on this tree and there is not so the fig tree at a distance looks leafy and green it has the appearance of fruitfulness but it's not healthy and what's going to become clear in this passage is that is how Jesus views the temple in his day well verse 14 and Jesus said may no one ever eat fruit from you again and the disciples heard this. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? And there he is citing Isaiah 56. But you have made it a den of robbers or a den of thieves. And there he's citing Jeremiah chapter 7. And the chief priests and the scribes, they heard it. And they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city and as they passed by the next morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, forgive, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What 
What do you think is the most important building in the United States of America? What, if you had to pick one that has sort of the richest historical significance, the, the one that, in, that represents kind of the essence of your country, you, you have a landmark, you have a building in mind. Well, just suppose that you are absolutely convinced that in a relatively short period of time, that building was going to be leveled by an earthquake. And you were utterly convinced that the earthquake would be God's judgment upon your country, particularly on the leaders of of your country. And you feel obligated to warn people. You're a prophet. And you... You didn't know that about yourself, did you? (laughs) You feel obligated to warn them and to give them a sign and to insist that they change their ways or else they will face the judgment of God. And so how do you go about doing that? What sign would you use to communicate that to other people? One of the famous atheists of the 20th century, Bertrand Russell, he cites this incident of the fig tree as, as proof of a defect in Jesus' character. He says, hey, look, um, this guy isn't all that exemplary. He curses perfectly helpless plants just because he's hungry. But if you notice what's happening, Mark, he sandwiches the, the cleansing of the temple right in between these two fig tree sections And by doing so, he understands that both of these are connected to each other. Both of them are signs of God's judgment. And this is the warning of the prophet of God. From a distance, you look perfectly healthy like a fruit-bearing tree. But upon closer inspection, uh, you are are a temple that has absolutely no life inside of you. You are diseased. And because of this, Jesus says, you fall under the curse of God. The Roman legions would, within 35 years' time, um, would come into the city of Jerusalem and sack it completely and leave no two stones uh, atop each other. So that is the passage we have before us. It is not the most devotional text that that can be found in the Bible, but I guess the questions that I want to explore. There's several. Why is Jesus Christ so ferociously angry? Now, what can take a typically mild-mannered, temperate kind of guy who's, who's full of love in his heart and turn him into somebody who is, who's frightening women and children? Uh, what kind of... What are his expectations? What are the kinds of fruit that Jesus Christ or that God expects to, to grow on a fig tree on his fig tree, and, and finally, how does mountain-moving prayer fit into all of this? That's where we're going. Number one, why is Jesus so, so mad? Well, the priests and the Sadducees, the Sadducees were kind of the ruling class of the day who were in charge of the temple precincts. Uh, they were performing a useful service for pilgrims who had traveled to Jerusalem for the annual Passover feast. I mean, if you're going to tran- 
travel hundreds of miles, would you plan to transport your own sacrifice there? I mean, how do you get an acceptable sacrifice acceptably after the end of, uh, you know, two or three hundred miles worth of journey? No, you need to buy it on site. Well, on site used to mean outside of the city walls, across the valley on the hillside of the Mount of Olives. That's where the, uh, the commercial operation was located. About three years prior to this incident, the priests and the Sadducees had this great idea. Why don't we move the, the commercial, the business operations into the temple itself? And so what they do is they move it into what's called the court of the Gentiles. The temple was set up in concentric zones of access. At the very center of the temple, you have the glorious presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God within what was called the Holy of Holies, this cubicle space that housed the Ark of the Covenant and the glory of God that would sit above the the winged cherubim that were on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that could only be entered into by the high priest and only once a year on the day of Yom Kippur. That was the central part. Second zone of access would have been the holy place in which there was an altar for the burning of incense and the table that they kept bread on and the the golden menorah or the lamps that were uh, tended to by a certain group of priests who could go in there on a daily basis. Next zone of access would be the court's courts of the priests. And this was where the majority of your animal sacrifices took place. The large altar of sacrifice was located out there. One further removed from that was the court of Israel, which was for men only. The court of women, which was aptly named. And then last but not least, and it was the largest of the temple courts, was the court of of the Gentiles. And Boy, this is a great idea. Why don't we turn the court of the Gentiles into a commercial operation? And it was some amazing operation. First century Jewish historian Josephus tells us that during one Passover feast, one, just only on one, there were some 255,000 animals sacrificed at that Passover. Now, Josephus is known to kind of inflate his numbers, and so maybe, maybe that was a bit of, of, infla- of uh, great inflation, so to speak. But you just think of the tumultuous activity that must have been going on there. You take the floor of the New York Stock Exchange or the floor of the Chicago Mer- Mercantile Exchange, and you add to the, that chaos and combustion livestock and, and this is supposed to be the place where Gentiles are to meet God? Jesus quotes Isaiah 56. And let me read it to you. It's, it's this passage which pictures large numbers of non-Jews who are traveling to Mount Zion to meet God. Uh, quote, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to the Lord, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants... These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For 
My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. We as Christians tend to read the Isaiah prophecies as, as though there's something that's supposed to happen in the future. In the future, the large number of people will, will stream to the mountain of God. But Jesus expected it to be happening then. He supposed that unprecedented numbers of foreigners were already supposed to be coming and worshiping God on his holy mountain. And what happens when they get there? There's no room. No room for them to pray. It's like a church that is full of busyness and has no prayer. Um, and, and they're crowded out. There, there's no place for them. So that's part of it. The second part of it, well, we have this, this presence of the money changers there. Nearly everybody in that day hated the priesthood, thought that the priesthood was, was terribly corrupt. Like every Jewish renewal movement uh, around the first century was longing for the day when the Messiah would return and cleanse the temple of, of the corrupted officials. Well, the money changers are, are there, and they too are providing a valuable service. Jews were expected to pay every Jew above the, like 20 and above, was expected to pay a one-half shekel temple tax, which went to provide for the upkeep of the, the temple. Now, if you came from other parts of the Roman Empire, undoubtedly you were carrying with you uh, a euro uh, in your pocket, or you know, Roman coinage in your pocket. And they expected you to exchange that for the proper currency. And the currency, that the only currency they would accept was called the the Tyrian shekel. It was made on the, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea up, I guess, where, where would that be? Around Lebanon today, the city of Tyre. Yeah, the priest said, it's got to be a Tyrian shekel. Why? Because most of the coins were 80% silver, but the Tyrian shekel was 94% sh- sh- silver. Uh, there's only one problem, is that this little coin has the picture of the god of Baal, the picture of Baal on it. And so it was like, um, we'll only accept that piece of money because it's the purest. But they just had absolutely no sense about the holiness and righteousness of God. According to one scholar, this was par for the course. The priest ran a mob-like loan business out of the temple, They gobbled up land from small landowners. They skimmed God's money from the treasury. You know, economic oppression was one of the reasons that Israel went into exile in the first place. And this continuing slew of economic injustices were a sign that they had never entirely returned to the land of promise. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, uh, this is exactly like it was in Jeremiah's day. This place is is a a temple for thieves. The most sacred patch of land on the earth in the mind of every Jew. And it houses some of the most greedy, corrupt officials that can be found. So one of the gospel accounts, I think it's the gospel of John, records Jesus running into the temple, holding a whip in his hand, Presumably, 
not, you know, he wasn't Indiana Jones. <laughs> he, he wasn't trying to um, throw the whip out and yank the gun out of the bad guy's hand. He was whipping like a cowboy over the heads of the livestock to create presumably a, a stampede. And you can imagine Jesus running around the court of the Gentiles, which was relatively large, and, and almost yelling, not in the house of the Lord, as he pushes over table after table, and, and coinage begins to scatter on the floor. And it says that he, he knocked packages out of people's arms. You notice that? He said it stopped people who were carrying loads through the court. The temple was like the largest building by far in the city of Jerusalem. And if you were, if you were carrying a, a heavy package to the other side of the city, it would, hey, it's, it's heavy. Why not use the temple court as a, as a shortcut? And they were cutting through the temple courts rather than walking the long way around. And here's Jesus just flaming mad pushing people over, screaming at the top of his lungs. Being an advocate for people like us. That's what's going on. It, it's, it's hard to, to single out just one strand in this tangled web of sinfulness and say, well, that's what made him furiously mad. I'm sure that the commercialization, the greed, the... Um, the business operations in the temple, the profaning of sacred space, the profaning of worship, that have your temple coins be the, the coins of a false god, the corruption, all of that had to make him pretty darn angry. But what Mark's readers would have picked up on, the number one thing, um, they were Gentiles like us. And so what they would see is a Jesus Christ who is advocating for foreigners, outsiders like us. I, I think it's a safe, safe thing to say. Jesus Christ is furiously mad when his own people fail to take care of the outsider. Uh, Jesus Christ is furiously mad when, when Christian people today fail to take care of the non-Christian. The economically exploited, the, the outsider. We, we can't stress enough how big a deal it is that our God is a missionary God. And we're going to get a, a very healthy dose of that when Jay Stoms comes in this week for our missions conference. But I just, uh, it, it gets repeated so many times in Christian churches. I, I hope that, that you are a person who's, whose heart beats for the outsider. I hope that you're making space for non-Christians in your life. Uh, I hope that we make space for non-Christians in our church. We're not the most contextualized church. I'm not up here dressed like a hipster with a, a tat on my arm. And I mean, we're not the most contextualized church. But, but if you're making space for those kinds of people, if you're just seeking them out in worship on Sunday mornings and um, paying attention and, and and caring for them. Love is the, great, the greatest contextualizing factor in the world. Jesus isn't pleased when we put unnecessary, stum un unnecessary stumbling blocks in front of, of other people. He's not pleased when churches are full of all busyness and not prayer. 
as I said, there's a whole lot wrong here, and I'm sure that that this is only one aspect that needs to be considered, but it, it's a very important one. Let's move on to verse 23, to the prayer part, this mountain-moving prayer. I say to you, whoever, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. When you were a young Christian, did you ever try that? <laughs> Like, literally, some of us have. <laughs> it may sound as though Jesus is providing, like, a general comment about the power of prayer to do extraordinary things. And, like, a- as you get older, you discover that he didn't really mean you, you should ca- cast um, Mount Everest into the sea. He was speaking in hyperbole, but this is, real, this is a passage about how extraordinary things can happen with prayer. No. Not here. When he says this mountain, he means, remember that the city of Jerusalem was built upon a mountain. Mount Zion, the highest point of the city, was the Temple Mount. If I'm understanding Jesus correctly, when he tells his disciples that they can pray for the Lord to cast the temple mount into the sea and it will happen, he is talking about that temple. And the sea, oftentimes in the Bible, is a sign of invading armies. That's exactly what happened. Now, I may not be right on this, but if I am, mountain-moving prayer, at least here in the Gospel of Mark, is a prayer for God's justice to be done. Again, that's not terribly devotional, but you have to remember the greatest opposition to the message of the gospel getting out to the rest of the world was located on top of that mountain. I mean, those guys who made their home in that robber's den were the same guys who put Jesus Christ to death. We have said this before, that in extreme situations, Christians are supposed to pray this way. You're you're supposed to cry out to the Lord of heaven and earth to do justice for the oppressed. Um, Very important caveats are provided here in verse 25. He says that you cannot pray these types of prayers with even a single ounce of vindictiveness in your hearts? No, you have to forgive them. So there should be no personal grievances that we, we pray. We don't pray that anybody gets drowned into the sea. You know, you forgive so that your Father in heaven may forgive your trespasses. There can't be any personal grievance. This is not a personal grudge man- match. But you are supposed to pray specifically against extreme evil and corruption and false worship and for the voiceless and for the oppressed. I, that doesn't characterize m- much of many of our prayer lists, does it? It's very important. I, last week I preached on the Trinity. We had Trinity Sunday. I said that the, the beautiful truth of the Trinity is that the fundamental reality of the universe is not a will to power, but it, but it is a community and love. That our Father, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, 
are, are eternally in love with one another. You say, well, how that seems to be irreconcilable with this character trait of justice. But it's not. You know, if, if you are a person, if you know a person who has suffered the result of a terrible crime and something truly remarkably bad and the perpetrator of that crime or the judge comes back to that person and says, hey, it's in the past. Can't we just let this go? The answer is absolutely not because that would be a grave injustice. When somebody has been truly and terribly wronged, saying sorry Saying let's forget about it is, is not enough. The fact is that the God of the Bible is a righteous judge who intervenes in human affairs, who wants to avenge the victim, especially when the victim doesn't have any voice. I think that's the ironic twist in this passage. You've got exploited People in the court of the Gentiles and Gentiles who are there who can't find even a second of silence and peaceful meditation to pray. You, you, they can't pray, so you must pray on their behalf. You have to cry to the God of heaven for justice, to cast this temple into the sea, to drown it in the deepest depths because, depths because, because this is the roadblock to keeping the gospel from going out to the rest of the world. And this is the temple that ultimately needs to be replaced with a new one, a fruitful one. Which leads me to my last point. Consent, concentric zones of, of access. When you walk into the court of the Gentiles very large courtyard that I, I think if I've got Herod's temple right in my head circles the in, it, it circles the entire inner, inner structure there are a few gates or archways through which you, so you walk into the, temp, the temple, court, the court of the Gentiles and then you would pass through this archway to go into the, to the court of the women well there was an inscription written in both Latin and Greek above the archway into the the courts of the women and it says these words no foreigner is to go beyond this balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death which will immediately follow and in 1871 archaeologists actually excavated one of these temple warning inscriptions the obvious problem is that if you're a Gentile who wants to go in and enjoy um, the face-to-face presence of God, the line in the sand is drawn. It's thus far and no further. If you're a woman, you you can go no further. How do we get back into the presence of God? Tim Keller, he often puts, puts it this way. He says, every other religion says that you are saved, you are connected to God by your own moral striving. Every other religion says, do these things and you will live. Live up to the standards and then you will have access. Live up to the standards and then you will be saved. 
to which we reply, we, I can't live up to the standards. I, I won't live up to the standards. And what the whole entire sacrificial system for, for a millennia was trying to demonstrate is that only through a perfect sacrifice could a person be brought into the presence of a holy God. We can't make that sacrifice, but there is one who does. The work of Jesus Christ was to tear down the zones of access, the roadblocks that, that bar us from boldly entering into the presence of the Lord without stain or, or blemish, without fear of death. And that is what Jesus' sacrifice did for us. He made it possible so that we could, could know God, to be with God, to experience God uh, the way that only a high priest could. He made it possible for us to get into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum. And, and it's for this reason that we love him so much. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who has offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins and who has torn down the dividing wall, the, the temple court barriers that divide men from women and Jews from Gentiles and priests from layperson. We thank you for Jesus, who has is, who is made in himself a new, a new temple into which outsiders and foreigners like us from all around the world have begun to flock inside. We thank you for him. Um, and our, our sincere prayer for our church and churches throughout the Treasure Valley is that we would be fruitful fig trees, that we would bear much fruit. Receive from our hands now the offering that we bring. Let it be a, a fragrant offering out of gratitude in our hearts for that which you've done for us. Amen.